If you would go ahead and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, we'll begin reading in verse 14 in just a moment. But as we get started this morning, I want you to think about something. Have you ever been at a restaurant or maybe at a friend's house for dinner and they serve you this great looking steak? They bring it out, it looks delicious and you're ready to bite into it. But when you cut into it and you take a bite, you realize the center is still cold. Or maybe you've been out on the lake all day and you, you were having a picnic and, and you had some potato salad that's you know, supposed to be kept cold, but it's been sitting for a while and now it's kind of warm. And, and so you don't realize it when you go to take a bite of it and you, and you just have that moment of, what is this? And, and you want to just spit it out. You want to expel it from your mouth. When food isn't the temperature you expect it to be, that's what we want to do. We want to expel it out of our mouth. We want to spit it out into our plate. But if you're a good guest, you don't do that. <laughs> Whether you're at a restaurant or at a friend's house, you go ahead, you swallow that, that cold steak, or you swallow that warm potato salad, and, and then maybe you might mention the temperature of the food. But, but in speaking to the church of Laodicea, Jesus is framing this conversation around the idea of a meal, of having this dinner, fellowship dinner with them. He desires to have a fellowship meal with his church, but when he finds the church to be lukewarm, he says he wants to vomit the church out of his mouth. Jesus just as you want your, your hot food to be hot and you want your cold food to be cold, Christ wants His church to be zealous in their love for Him and in obedience to His commands. So notice as we get into our passage today that Jesus does not have a word of commendation for the church of Laodicea. He has nothing good to say about them. But He says, I want to vomit you out of my mouth because I find you to be disgusting. If you were hot, I would be okay. If you were cold, it would be okay. But this lukewarm, disgusting indifference makes me want to vomit the church out of my mouth. They disgust him so much that he doesn't tell them these are the good things that you have going, but he rather jumps directly into, here's my problem that I have with you. So before we get into that, let's look at some background on Laodicea. Laodicea was located in the Lycus River Valley. It was about 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia that we studied last time. It was about 90 miles east from Ephesus, which was the first of the churches that we studied. So we've made this, this circular motion, this postal route around to all of these seven churches. Laodicea was a banking center. It was a wealthy city. In fact, when it was hit by an earthquake in the year 60 A.D., the city refused imperial aid and decided instead that they would just rebuild the city themselves. They didn't need the government's money. How many of us would do that? Uh, but in fact, Robert Mounts calls it the wealthiest city of the area, but it had this great weakness. Its water was undrinkable. It had a lack of adequate water supply to support its population, and they had to use aqueducts from miles away to reach the city. To the north was Hierapolis, where they had hot water with uh, soothing properties, and to the south they had Colossae, 
which had cold, refreshing water. But from either point, by the time the water reached the city of Laodicea, it had become tepid and disgusting. And further, excavations have revealed that in those, those storage units that they had from the aqueducts, they found such heavy lime deposits that it may, likely made the water to be nauseating. And so Jesus is drawing upon this common issue familiar with the Laodiceans of tainted water as he addresses his church in the city. So let's get started by looking at verse 14. Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea, thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. Jesus starts off his letter to the church of Laodicea by pointing them to the fact that he is the divine inventor of the church. He is the divine inventor of the church. He reminds the church of who he is. And he uses three terms to describe himself. The first, Jesus calls himself the Amen. Now, this is an unusual use of the Hebrew term, Amen. Amen normally means let it be. And so as Jesus applies this to himself as a title, he's indicating that what he is saying is true. It's going to be the case. There can be no doubt about it. He is the amen. What he says will take place. It will be. But he goes further with this idea in his next title of the faithful and true witness. He's not saying that this is merely by his own authority, but he's drawing on his authority as a witness to the power of the Father. In John chapter 3, Jesus says, He testifies to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. For the one whom God sent speaks God's words, since he gives the Spirit without measure. So Jesus testifies to the truths of the Father. There is nothing in God that is false. God is always faithful. Christ is always faithful. The Spirit is always faithful. As the Godhead, the three-in-one, they are faithful. Christ is faithful to His church. But the problem arises that the church is not always faithful to Him. And so we will see that this is the case with the church of Laodicea. They had abandoned Christ, but Christ has not yet abandoned them. And so he's coming to challenge them to return to him. He also reminds the church that he is the originator of God's creation. He's the originator of God's creation. When Jesus uses the term God in the book of Revelation and in the Gospel of John, he's referring to God the Father. God is three in one. He's God the Father, God the Son, who is Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. And so here Jesus is using the term God in reference to the Father. And notice that he says that creation came from Jesus himself. John had written to this truth back in John chapter 1 when he opened his gospel with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, Trinity... He was with God in the beginning with the Father. All things were created through Him. And apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. And so Jesus is the divine creator of all that exists. 
If we look out and we see the trees, we, we see the leaves on the trees, and we can know that Christ made the trees. We know that He made the leaves. We know that He made the material that this desk is made out of. We know that He made the, the components, the, the, the minerals that come out of the ground to make components for our computers. All of this was created by Christ. All things originate with God the Father and are accomplished through God the Son, that is Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so here, Christ reminds His church that He has created all things, and then specifically as they're relying on their material wealth, He's reminding them that He is the one who created that wealth. He is the one who created that gold that comes out of the ground. He is the one who created that silver that comes out of the ground. He has created all things. The main problem with the church of Laodicea was the problem of humanity in general. And Paul wrote it this way, Romans 1.25, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshipped and served what had been created instead of the Creator who is praised forevermore. Amen. And so as the second person of the Trinity, Christ created the heavens and the earth, but as the Savior of mankind, He established and He initiated and He invented the concept of His church. He is the divine inventor of His church. And it is not something that mankind has established, but rather the Lord Himself built it. But the church at Laodicea seemed to have forgotten that the church was Christ's church. And so he reminded them that he was God in the flesh, the creator of the universe, and the inventor of the church. And so then he says to them in verse 15, I know your works, that you were neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth, for you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Notice the ignorant deception in the, in the church. The ignorant deception in the church. See, the church thought they were good, but Jesus tells them that they are disgusting to Him. He is so disgusted by their spiritual indifference that He wants to vomit them out of His mouth. And the sad thing is that they thought they were doing the right things. And Christ sees their deeds and is sickened. He finds their deeds revolting. He is repulsed at them and offended by them. And so this church was spiritually useless. They claimed to love Christ, but they didn't show it by their actions. They claimed to be faithful to Him, but they weren't faithful in their attitude toward Him. They were neither refreshingly cold, nor were they therapeutically hot, but they were disgustingly apathetic, and they couldn't even see it. They needed deliverance from their situation, but before Christ could offer their deliverance, they needed to understand their deep need for the deliverance. They do not realize that they need Christ. 
They had placed their faith in their physical, material wealth. And the book of Proverbs makes it clear that that is not a wise place to place your confidence. Proverbs eleven twenty eight says, Anyone trusting in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. The name of the church is a strong, or the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are protected. The wealth of the rich is in his fortified city and in his imagination. It is like a high wall. Not that it is a high wall. He thinks that it is. But the name of the Lord is the strong tower where people can be protected. Further, the false prophet and the harlot both use wealth and greed to entice the world to worship the beast rather than to worship God. In Revelation 13, it says the beast's name or number of its name has to be on everybody so that they can buy and sell. It says so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark of the beast. Revelation 18 All the nations have drunk the wine of the harlot's sexual immorality, which brings wrath. The kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown wealthy from her sensuality and excess. Yet, what do we spend so much of our time working toward? We're trying to amass wealth, physical, material wealth, because we want to find some some physical security. We go through years and years of school, of of going to college and and working toward a master's degree and working toward a doctorate so that we can make more money. Why are we working so hard for something that doesn't even matter? See, wealth can be a stumbling block for the church. It leads to self-reliance and it leads to an impoverished spiritual life. And that's what happened to the church at Laodicea. They have placed their sense of security and satisfaction in their wealth rather than in their Savior. They thought they were rich, but Jesus points out their delusion that they are, in fact, poor, blind, and naked. There was a church in Colorado that thought the same way. They they were so focused on on the financial side of the church that they were saving their money. They They were putting their faith in financial security, but they had stopped working for God. And the church eventually had to shut its doors. But when it shut its doors, it had $100,000 in the bank. And that ended up going to help start a new church later on. It was not a Baptist church, but the Baptist Convention of Colorado was able to acquire the building and acquire the funds to be able to use. So God can use the good out of it. But the church that was originally there had misplaced their faith and their security. Rather than in God, they had placed it in their material blessings. They thought they were wealthy, but they were actually spiritually poor. So rather than being rich, the church at Laodicea, Jesus says to the church that they are in fact poor, blind, and naked. They are poor, they are naked, but they're blind to their condition And they are as deceived as Israel had become in Hosea chapter 12. Ephraim thinks, how rich I have become. I made it all myself and all my earnings. No one can find any iniquity in me that I can be punished for. 
And so Jesus suggests this parallel to the people of God in the book of Isaiah. The people needed the Creator to heal their blindness and to relieve them of their poverty. And so therefore Isaiah recorded in Isaiah 41, The poor and the needy seek water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst, but the Lord says, I will answer them. I am the Lord, the God of Israel. I will not abandon them. Isaiah 42, he says, This is what God the Lord says, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I am the Lord. I have called you for a righteous purpose, and I will hold your hand. I will watch over you, and I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the nations in order to open blind eyes, to bring prisoners from the dungeon and those sitting in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord. That is my name, and I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. The past events have indeed happened. Now I declare new events, and I announce them to you before they occur. You see, the good news is that Jesus can heal our blindness. Both Matthew and Mark and and the Gospel of John all record that Jesus made the blind see. The church was in need of a deliverance from their situation, but they were blind to their situation. First, they had to understand their need. Only Christ could help them, but first they needed to see that they needed His help. And you know, the Laodiceans represent all of humanity so well. Because we all desire security. We all desire satisfaction. And so many people try to find it in other places. Some try to find it in material wealth, but they realize they're not satisfied, and so they just want more and more and more, and they never get enough money or stuff. Some try to find it in relationships, and so they, they will get with one person, and they, they spend some time with them, and, and they're satisfied for a time, but then when that, they're no longer satisfied, they say, okay, I'm done with you, and I'm moving on, and I'm going to have a relationship with this person. Some try to find satisfaction in their next high or at the, the bottom of a bottle. And none of these things fulfill, but humanity is blind to our true need that we need a Savior. They, they try to fill with all of these other things because they feel this longing for something that is missing. But they're blind to their true need, a relationship with their Creator. And only Christ can open the eyes of blind people to see their true need. So are your eyes opened? Revelation chapter 3, verse 18. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed, and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke, and discipline, so be zealous and repent. See, Christ gives this instructive discipline for the church. He has this instructive discipline for the church. He had revealed the church's true situation, but he doesn't just point out the church's faults, but provides instruction on what to do about the situation. And so each of these correlate to the church's condition. Each of them involve immediate changes in their lives that have eternal rewards And their purchases involve a return to living in obedience to Christ's commands so that they might be worthy of those eternal rewards. And so the first thing Jesus says is we need eye ointment so that we can see. 
We need eye ointment so we can see only Jesus can open their eyes. Only Jesus can heal them. Jesus came to dwell among humanity as one of us to show us how we are to live. And he lived this perfect life in accordance with both the letter and the spirit of God's law. Yet we have within us a sin nature that prevents us from living as Christ demonstrated. We can only live in obedience by the power of his spirit. And he has revealed to us our need for him to open our eyes to our sin nature. We needed to see how we all fail to live up to, to uphold the righteousness of God. And so you can look to other human beings and think, oh, I'm better than him because uh, he's a murderer. He killed somebody. Or, hey, I'm better than her because she gossips a lot and I only gossip a little bit. Uh, And so... We, we think, oh, if I look at other people, I'm so good. Look at me. Look at me. I'm, I'm, I'm fabulous. But when we compare ourselves with God, with Christ, and the fulfillment of the law, we see we are poor and naked. But we're blind to it until Christ opens our eyes. Each of us falls short when we compare ourselves with Christ. And so we need this eye balm, this ointment, this this eye salve to open our eyes, and only Jesus can do it. We need Him to open our eyes. He says we also need white clothes to cover our shame. We need white clothes to cover our shame. In Revelation, white clothes are associated with the purity of Christ that's placed on his followers. And and way back in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they became ashamed of themselves. And so they, they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves, to hide their sin and to hide their shame. And that's the condition of all mankind. When we do something wrong, we, we either deny it and try to hide it or we blame it on other people, just as Adam and Eve did. Because why? We are ashamed of our sin. And sin and shame are not just based on the acts that we commit, but, but they are part of our fallen nature. But Jesus died on the cross to take all of the stain of sin upon himself. He took all of our sin nature upon himself. He took the curse of the wrath of God and it was poured out on him. And as he hung on that cross, he was our substitute. We deserved to be there. And Christ did not deserve to be there, but he took our place and atoned for our sin in a way that as as finite beings we never could have done. And so he took our punishment. And in place of that, he imparted his righteousness to those who believe on his name and to those who follow him. And he gives them white robes because they have been purified not just of of sinful acts, but of a sinful nature. Those who trust in him can stand before the Father as unblemished and righteous because Christ paid the price. So we need his white robes to be honest, to signify His righteousness and His purity that has been placed upon us when we, when we fall to our knees and we say, Lord, I have sinned against you. Please forgive me. Let me live for you. 
He gives us his white robe, his righteousness. He says we also need the gold refined in fire to be rich. We need the gold refined in fire to be rich. Matthew 6.20, Jesus says, But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. You see, the church at Laodicea may have been materially wealthy, but they were spiritually impoverished, and what they needed was the riches of Christ. What they needed was to walk in faithfulness to Christ. The riches of Christ come only through suffering through the refiner's fire. He, he tests us. He clears away the dross and the nastiness of our sin as we progress in sanctification. We can only become more like Christ as we experience suffering and faithfulness to Him. And so these may seem like harsh words that Christ is using with the church, but He makes it abundantly clear that the reason that He does this is because He loves His church. Look with me back again at verse 19. As many as I love I rebuke and discipline. So just as you should tell people you care about if they have a, have a bad smell or if they have a, a booger hanging from their nose or if their actions are leading them down this path that you see is going to be a hard path, a, a path of hardship, and you, you want to correct them and bring them back before they get started on that path because Christ loves His church. He uses this strong language to correct them because he loves them. Proverbs 3, verse 12, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. And so we need to repent of our sin so that we can renew our fellowship with God. Let me say that again. We need to repent of our sin to renew our fellowship with God. And that's, that's for believers and unbelievers alike. We all need to repent of our sin so that our fellowship with God may be restored. Christ had revealed their condition. He had instructed them on what they really need, but it only can be granted to them through the act of repentance. Jesus offers this reconciliation and this renewal to fellowship with Him. He wants to be reconciled to people, but that can only happen if people admit that they have done wrong against Him, that they have turned away from Him. And so the church needs to acknowledge that they had turned away from Christ and had turned instead to money, and they need to turn back away from the money and back to Christ. And maybe it's something else for you. Maybe it's not money. Maybe it's one of those other things I mentioned earlier. Maybe it's, maybe it's something that you're doing in the privacy of your home, in your bedroom, that nobody else can see. Whatever it is that, that you're sinning against Christ, Maybe he's called you to do something and you're refusing to do it because you're scared or, or you feel like you're not prepared for that. Christ says, repent. Acknowledge your sin. Repent of it and renew the relationship with me. It's only possible when we repent of our sin and return to Christ. We can renew our relationships with Christ in such a way. And if we do so, there are rewards that are both immediate and eternal. Look at verse 20. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as 
I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And so he offers this distinguished invitation to the church. He offers this distinguished invitation to the church. So, so once again, Jesus is using this illustration of dining, and he says, I am standing at your door, and I'm knocking, and I want to come in so that I can have a, a meal with you. I can have this relationship with you. He wants to be present with you here and now. He has come to you and asked you to let him in to eat with you. He wants to have a relationship with you now. Imagine if the President of the United States were standing at your door, knocking, wanting to come in and sit at your table and and have a a meal with you. Wouldn't that be such a great thing? Wouldn't you immediately open the door and get started with getting the meal laid out and prepared and you would sit down and, and have a time to discuss with him? Do you realize that the king of kings is standing at the door and he is knocking and he wants to come in and have a fellowship meal with you? You can have a relationship with Christ that is here and now. And if you accept him, he sends his Holy Spirit to dwell with you as as the comforter and as the seal of the promise of his return because the day is coming when our resurrected Savior will come again and he will take those who were faithful to him to live with him forever. And so while he's knocking on your door and he wants to dwell with you now, he also wants to take you back to his place. He wants you to come home with Him. And when He does so, He's going to reverse the curse of Genesis 3. See, God created mankind to to care for creation and to rule over creation. And at the end of days, Jesus says He will sit the faithful in the rightful place alongside Him, that we will rule alongside Him, that there will be this bodily resurrection. We'll be united together in this new Jerusalem, in the new earth, And everything will be perfect as it was in Genesis 1 and 2. Man will be restored to being over the earth and its creation. We look forward to that day because we have the inheritance that he has purchased for us by his death and resurrection. He has sealed the promise of our own bodily resurrections with the promise of the Holy Spirit. When he returns, we will be raised in a new body like his, immature or uh, uh, incorruptible and immortal. See, the, the Laodiceans needed an immediate and a significant correction to their trajectory. Jesus could see that they were, they were heading the wrong direction. They were blind to their need for faithfulness to Christ. And some... So many of us are doing the same thing. That we are walking down a wrong path and and blind to our need. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're walking down the wrong path and you don't even know it because you're blind to your need for Christ and you need to, to repent and call out to Him, God, open my eyes that I may see my sin against you and that I may repent of it and return to you and to live for you in faithfulness and obedience to your commands. So will you repent of your sin and live according to God's commands? Will you pray and ask God to reveal your blindness? Will you pray and ask Jesus that your eyes would be open so that you may see? Pray that you would. I pray 
that you would do that. If you've never accepted the Lord Jesus Christ into your heart, you've never acknowledged Him as, as your Lord, that you would do so. That you would make the decision in your heart. See, in, in Scripture, the heart is the center of decision. And so when, we, when we're speaking about asking Jesus into your heart, we're not asking uh, that He's going to physically come in because he, is, he has a body. That would be weird. But, but He sends His Spirit to dwell with us. But we make the decision in our heart that we're going to follow after Christ. So would you make a decision to follow Him all the days of your life? If you would like to do so, here's how you do it. You, scripture says that you have to acknowledge your sin. Jesus can open our eyes to reveal our nature. You acknowledge that you're a sinful creature fallen because of the curse of Genesis 3. Then you believe in the work and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that He was God the Son, is God the Son, that He came to dwell with us as in the Incarnation, that He lived among us in His ministry, teaching us about the Kingdom of God, that He was killed on a cross, on a Roman cross. And when he died, he he paid the penalty for our sin in our place. And and that penalty, that the wrath of God was poured out upon him. And and we don't have to to worry about the penalty for us anymore. And instead of, of the penalty that we were due, he gives us his righteousness. And then he was, after he died on the cross, he was buried. He was dead as a doornail. He laid in the tomb for three days. But then on the third day, he walked back forth out of the tomb, resurrected in a glorious body. And then he appeared to hundreds of people, teaching them about the kingdom of God and what the fulfillment of that means. And that he then ascended back into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father until the time comes that he returns to bring the faithful back to him. If you believe that and you've admitted your sin, All you have to do is confess Him with your mouth as Lord. Romans 10 tells us, if you confess with your your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. If you would do that, you can be with Him forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You so much for the great love that You have for us. Father, that You sent the Son to, to live among us, to teach us your ways, that he died on the cross as a perfect sacrifice, having no sin. He was like us in every way except that he had no sin. And so he was a perfect sacrifice, able to take our punishment, and that he did so, and he died, was buried, and was raised on the third day so that we might experience the resurrection that we might experience the redemption of our souls and our bodies. God, we look forward to the day when that time comes that you have brought that to final fruition when Christ returns. But until then, God, for those who have been faithful, you sent us the Holy Spirit to be a seal upon us of the promise. God, may we be faithful. May 
our eyes be opened to the sin that is in our lives, that we would repent of it and restore our fellowship with you. Pray this in the holy, precious name of the Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Amen. If you made a decision,